You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Tuesday, January 20th, 2009, was a big deal. It was a terrific day. It was a, it was a, an ecstatic day. I was beside myself really with a kind of unalloyed political joy that is a lefty and a progressive and a Democrat. I rarely get to experience. Oh, we have joy. We Democrats, we le- lefties and progressives. We have our victories. We have our wins, but they're often pretty fucking alloyed. Sometimes the shit is alloyed out of them, but Tuesday, January 20th, 2009, unalloyed political ecstasy. That is the day that Barack Obama was sworn in as president. He took the oath of office. He gave his first inaugural address, and it was terrific. The speech was terrific, and it was a dark moment for our country. We were in the midst of a runaway economic collapse. We had two ongoing wars in the Middle East that were disastrously overseen by the disastrous Bush administration. And outgoing, we were, we were saying goodbye to George W. Bush after eight nightmarish years kicked off by the theft of the election in 2000, saying goodbye to Dick fucking Darth Cheney. We were saying goodbye to so much garbage and crap and ugliness in, with the inauguration of Barack Hussein Obama. And also at that time, the swearing in of a brand new Congress with both the Senate in the House of Representatives, controlled by Democrats. It was an exciting moment. And I'm going to play for you something that the president said that day in his inaugural address that really electrified the room that I was in, that I leaned back in my chair after he said this and played with my nipples for about three minutes. It was so arousing. I was so excited to hear the president, our new president, our freshly sworn in president, say this. There is work to be done. The state of our economy calls for action, bold and swift, and we will act not only to create new jobs, but to lay a new foundation for growth. We will build the roads and bridges, the electric grids and digital lines that feed our commerce and bind us together. We will restore science to its rightful place and wield technology's wonders to raise health care's quality and lower its cost. We will restore science to its rightful place. After eight years of George W. Bush's science-free, fact-free administration, the war on empiricism, the war on data, after eight years of that, to hear the president say, we will restore science to its rightful place. Ah, the new president. Ah, that was a delicious moment. And what, what ran through my head at that time and I was in a crowded room full of people. I actually hosted a party here in Seattle for people who wanted to watch the inaugural address in a room full of similarly ecstatic lefties and progressives. What I thought was, oh my God, abstinence education is over. We are done with this disastrous, embarrassing, sex-negative experiment. federal government had spent hundreds of millions of dollars on abstinence education, sending – not sex educators into schools, but anti-sex educators into schools on the public dime, almost all of them Jesus freaks, to stand there and say, you shouldn't have sex until you get married. And to say that to also 
gay and lesbian students who at the time could never get married, that the only permissible sexual activity was sexual activity within the bounds of matrimony, monogamous, married for life. And that would be fine, I guess, if also bundled with that information was most of you, however, are not going to wait till marriage. Most of us adults, even though adults in the room lecturing you about this shit, did not wait for marriage. So when you choose to become sexually active, here's what you need to know about consent, about disease prevention, about condoms, about birth control, about IUDs, about non-normative sexual desires and expression, about gender. Here's everything else you need to know. We would, we adults who have forgotten what it was like to be your age would appreciate it if you just never had sex until you got married, which of course we didn't do. But if you're going to do this, here's everything else you need to know. But that's not part of abstinence education. Abstinence education is grounded in the theory that if you don't tell kids about sex and if you just tell them they're not supposed to have it, they won't have it. Don't tell them about it. They won't figure it out. These people ever watched Blue Lagoon. Google it. Look it up. And while the government was pouring hundreds of millions of dollars, which began in the Clinton administration, went through the George W. Bush administrations, while they were pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into abstinence ed, people were studying it. People were looking at it. And you know what they found? Researchers found? It didn't work. At best, people who had abstinence-only sex education delayed the onset of sexual activity by six months, roughly. But when they did become sexually active, they were less likely to use condoms, less likely to use birth control, more likely to contract a sexually transmitted infection or have an unplanned pregnancy. A lot of abstinence education classes didn't just omit information about birth control. They told kids it didn't work. They told kids condoms would not protect them from disease or pregnancy so that when these kids who were subjected to abstinence-only sex ed became sexually active, a lot of them concluded they didn't need to bother with condoms. Why go get a condom? They don't work anyway. And that, of course, is a lie. Condoms correctly used are extremely effective at preventing unplanned pregnancies and protecting people from disease transmission. They also, in abstinence education classes, talk obsessively about vaginal intercourse. There's no information about queer sexuality. There's no information about other forms of sexual expression, even perhaps less risky forms of sexual expression, kinds of sexual intimacies that adults enjoy that young people might opt for in place of riskier vaginal intercourse. If you say to kids, a lot of adults engage in mutual masturbation, oral sex. If you want to get it on and get it off with your boyfriend and girlfriend, here's an option for you where you don't have to risk pregnancy. If there isn't a condom around, why don't you masturbate together like a lot of adults do frequently? They would only say vaginal intercourse is, is sex. It is sex. Vaginal intercourse. That is sex. Don't have sex. Don't have vaginal intercourse. And hilariously, one of the results of the hundreds of millions of dollars we spent on absence education were kids all over the country who were having anal sex because they figured that wasn't sex, that they were still virgins if they were only doing it in the butt, which means after 21 years together, my husband is still a virgin. Anyway, Barack Obama's speech, his inaugural address, came to mind. It actually unspooled in my head. I could hear his voice. I could hear him saying, we will restore science to its rightful place. As I read this on Think Progress, as I read this, as I read this at Think Progress today, shocking maps show how bad U.S. sex ed is. Quoting from Think Progress, Nearly half of all high school students in the United States are sexually active, but the public school system is doing little to provide crucial education on the topic. 
In fact, a new report by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention found that abstinence education far outweighs disease and pregnancy prevention education in most middle and high schools curriculum. Only 30% of American high school students have a sex ed class where they explain, where they learn how to obtain and correctly use condoms. We are spending over the last five years, we have spent a quarter of a billion dollars sunk another quarter of a billion dollars into abstinence only sex ed. It doesn't work. Not only doesn't it work, it has the opposite of its intended effect. It drives up the unplanned pregnancy rate. That drives up the abortion rate. It results in more young people contracting sexually transmitted infections. And you hammer away at this. I hammer away at this all the time. I'm hammering away at it now. And the assumption that I think we make is that social conservatives are operating from a place of good faith, that if we can just acquaint them with the facts that abstinence-only sex ed, if that's all your kids get, they're going to be harmed. This is going to do damage. It's going to result in unplanned pregnancies and sexually transmitted infection rates going up. And you think if we can just get that through to them, then they will – all realize that they should support comprehensive sex education. That can also include maybe you shouldn't be sexually active at your age. Maybe you should wait. And more young people are waiting these days. But they never do come around. And I think we have to judge them on their actions here. It's not that the negative consequences of abstinence education are a bug. They are a feature. It is what they are after. These sex-negative Psychos want people to be punished, want people to suffer, want people, if they choose to be sexually active, to endure negative outcomes. So then they can turn around and say, see, we were right about sexual activity. We were right about you having sex. Look what happened to you. They want to be able to hold up people with unplanned pregnancies, with sexually transmitted infections, young people, as examples to others of what not to do. So sex education that's comprehensive and effective that results, in their f that results in fewer people being harmed by choosing to be sexually active is the opposite of what they want. Now I had hoped in, 20, now I had hoped in 2009 when our new president stood up there and said we're going to restore science to its rightful place that that included the science of sex and the science of sex education. And that abstinence education was over. And here we are, 2016, and we are spending a quarter of a billion dollars on abstinence education. And the CDC is out with a report letting us all know that kids are getting in this country lousy sex ed. And I am here to tell you that that is by design. And they don't care how many young people's lives they have to destroy how many young people's lives they have to derail in the process to get to, we were right. Here's hoping our next president stands up inauguration day, 2017 and pledges not just to restore science to its rightful place, but to consign abstinence education to its rightful place, which is the trash heap coming up today on the Magnum, Peter Staley, noted AIDS activist. He and I get into a dust up about Truvada or Truveda, as I prefer to say it. And tons of your questions, tons of your calls, starting now. Hi, Dan. 24, male breeder, 
last week I was house sitting for my parents and they have a small dog and the dog, she's female and she likes to masturbate on the floor excessively. And I, I don't enjoy this at all. So I stop the dog from masturbating all the time and I'm pretty stoned. So I'm feeling bad for stopping the dog from masturbating. Was I wrong? I mean, if I was a dog and that was my only way of sexual expression, I wouldn't want somebody to stop me from that. So am I an asshole from stop, for stopping the dog from masturbating? You reach a point in the sex advice racket where you feel like you've answered every question. And then you sit down in front of the microphone and you are delighted and surprised to discover that no, in fact, you haven't answered every question because you finally got the did I slut shame my parents dog question that you never got before. I don't think it's possible to slut shame a dog. Think of what we do to dogs around their sexuality. We we take their balls off. We we spay them. We take it all away from them. And some of them still attempt to rub one out on the carpet for pleasure. And then what do we do? We shoo them away. We ask them to stop because we don't want to see that shit. And that's fine. That's fine. You know why? Because there are probably other rooms in your parents' house where their dog, if she really needs desperately to rub one out right this minute, can retire to rub one out right this minute out of your sight. So I don't think, stoner friend, I don't think you did anything wrong. And I'm going to posit and perhaps piss off some PETA activists here. I'm going to posit that it is impossible, in fact, to slut shame your mom's dog. It's going to go out on a limb and say that emphatically. If you want to argue with me, you know the number. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at rescue. I am a 20-year-old cisgendered woman, bisexual college student, and a big fan. I'm calling to ask, what are my responsibilities as a more experienced sexual partner? I know of your campsite rule, but I'm wondering how to enact it. I've recently started a sexual and romantic relationship with a freshman here at school. He's 18, so legal, and most of the time seems very mature, but every once in a while, I feel like I'm robbing the cradle. I hate to talk about virginity, as it's such an archaic, patriarchal, heteronormative notion. I mean, if we've both been having orgasms through manual and oral stimulation, doesn't that count as sex? Anyway. He's never had vaginal intercourse, but I guess my question isn't just specifically about that first-time experience for him. Since realizing the disparity in our sexual histories, I've been feeling a great sense of responsibility to him and I guess to his future lovers. I've never been in this position before, and most of my sexual experience has come from a three-year relationship with my high school sweetheart. Uh, we bumbled through our sexual debuts together as novices. I've been teaching my new partner how to make me come to great success and encouraging him to give me directions or make requests during sex. I've even given him my spiel about how virginity is obsolete as a concept. Um, so what should I look out for in his reactions or how should I take care of him? If someone is 18 years old and still in a cradle, you aren't robbing the cradle. You are rescuing this person from the cradle. It is time at 18 for him to get the fuck out of the cradle. So don't feel bad about removing this adult male human being from the cradle in which you found him. 
I don't think virginity is obsolete as a concept. I think the way you define virginity, the way you seem to understand virginity is obsolete or a little whack, particularly for someone who just judging from your lingo and presentation of your question considers herself pretty sexually hip and educated and progressive. Uh, a virgin is someone who has not yet had sex with another human being. If you've had oral and manual intercourse with someone else, you are not a virgin because oral sex is sex. Sex is oral sex's last name. Michelle Obama is an Obama, not the Obama who comes to mind when people say Obama, but an Obama still. Same with oral sex. When you say sex, people don't think oral. They think intercourse. But sex is still sex the same way Michelle Obama is an Obama. So you need to – so rather than discard the concept of virginity, we need to stop talking about it like there's your V card. There is your deck of V cards and you lose your virginities as you go. So he has lost his oral virginity. He has lost his mutual masturbation virginity. What he hasn't lost is this thing that you have lost or has not yet experienced. We talk about losing your virginity as a, it's a terrible thing. that You've misplaced this precious object and that's just not true. What he has not yet experienced is penetration, is vaginal intercourse, right? That's the thing that you have not yet Done. And for all of your hand wringing and all of your stress, it sounds like you're doing everything fucking right, except, you know, the way you presented virginity as perhaps obsolete when it just is more multi layered and complicated than your presentation of it. And you're concerned about robbing the cradle. 18 year old adult, and as the older, much more experienced, not yet able to legally drink anywhere in the United States partner in this relationship, it is your responsibility to. Listen to him, to draw him out, to communicate. And it is his responsibility to listen and draw you out and communicate with you too. Being younger and less experienced doesn't absolve you from the responsibility of being a good and decent and solicitous and compassionate and considerate sex partner. But you may, as the older, wiser, not yet able to legally drink anywhere in the United States, partner in this relationship, be under a slightly higher obligation to perhaps take the lead. And maybe he's looking to you to take the lead. And it sounds like you're doing everything right. You're asking him questions. You're seeing how he feels. You're checking in. You're drawing him out. You are cognizant of the campsite rule, which for newbies is a rule I laid down many years ago for the older and more experienced persons in a relationship with a large age disparity. And when I first talked about this, I was talking about 15, 20 year age disparities. And the campsite rule went like this borrowing the campsite rule from, I think, the Boy Scouts, that it's your responsibility to leave the campsite in better shape than you found it. it is, your responsibility is the older, wiser, whatever in the relationship to leave the younger, more naive, less experienced person in better shape than you found them, which means no unplanned pregnancies, which means no sexually transmitted infections, if at all possible, which means no illusions, which means no false promises and shattered hearts and psyches that can come in the wake of false promises or inflated expectations. You have to be realistic and considerate of their emotional and physical well-being and leave them in better shape than you found them for the next. And that's the and the logical extension of the campsite rule when you're talking about campsites out in the woods at a national forest is you're leaving them in better shape than you found them for the next person that's going to camp there. Same thing with the campsite rule when applied to sex partners. You, if there's a large age disparity or you're very young people and you're at college, the odds that you're going to be together for the rest of your life are slim. So that person is going to go on to have other relationships and other sex partners and you want them to be good at it 
and you want them to not be a basket case because you've destroyed them emotionally. You want to leave them in better shape than you found them for the next person who's going to camp there. And caller, sounds like you're nailing it. Now go nail him. Hi, Dan. This is a 25-year-old woman in New York City. Um, I'm calling because I'm wondering what you think about the spectrum between being shallow and caring about what someone looks like. Um, I just started seeing a guy who I like, and I think, you know, I'm attracted to him in all the ways it should be, but um, I don't know. I think he's traditionally not... um, you know, the most attractive kind of guy. And my friends have said some things about it. Um, but that so far it doesn't matter to me, but maybe, maybe I'm being desperate and, and maybe it's shallow of me to kind of take the side of my friends that like there's an attractiveness differential. So, um, anyway, just wondering what you think about that and, you know, when, when to avoid being shallow and and when, you know, you really have to take that stuff seriously. Well, as the less attractive half of a long-term relationship that involves an attractiveness differential, I don't know if you've checked out my husband's Instagram account, but it is clear that he is the far more attractive person in our relationship. I want to advocate for your boyfriend. And I want to tell you to stop listening to your friends. That's the toxic shit going on here. What leapt out, the way you said it, it was sort of, in quotes and italics and bolded when you said, my friends have said some things about it. I bet if your friends hadn't poured that poison in your ear, you wouldn't be having these issues right now. You need to disregard, you need to set aside what your friends think of your boyfriend's looks and focus on how you feel about your boyfriend and his looks. Are you attracted to him emotionally, physically? Are you attracted to him? Are you so attracted to him emotionally that it overrides physical defects that might in someone who is less emotionally compatible and emotionally attractive be a problem for you sexually. That's what matters here. And if you are emotionally, physically, and romantically attracted to this person, stop listening to your fucking friends. It is a terrible thing when a relationship ends because someone is so conscious of their friend's opinion of their partner Based on surface shit, not whether their partner is toxic or abusive or an asshole or a user, but surface shit on whether a partner is attractive enough for them to want to fuck, which is irrelevant because they're not fucking him. You are to dump someone for those reasons is just so needless and and, and self-defeating and stupid. And if your friends really get on you about it, print out a photograph of early Jan Michael Vincent or Leif Garrett and print out a late photograph of Jan Michael Vincent or Leif Garrett. These are really ancient pop culture references. You should all rush to Google now and figure out who the fuck I'm talking about. And remind your friends that time and life and trial have a way of disintegrating everyone's looks. People like Jan Michael Vincent and Leif Garrett who abuse drugs and alcohol, they have a way of disintegrating their looks at a faster clip, but... Time shreds us all. So they're conventionally attractive hot boyfriends or husbands that they're with right now in 20 or 30 or 40 years if they are still with them. Yeah, not probably as conventionally attractive as they are right now. But hopefully at that future point, their emotional affection, their romantic attraction to their partner will override 
whatever problems they may have or may have had physically with that person if they weren't so emotionally and romantically attracted to them. That is where you are now, where your friends will have to get at one point in the future in their long-term relationships. You are there now. Congratulations. Enjoy him. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Um, I am a 20-something-year-old girl from Canada, and I am lying in bed having just masturbated to a couple sexual encounters I've been having on and off with this guy. Um, the sex is unbelievable, but the only thing is, is he's a chauvinist pig. Um, okay, that's too harsh. He's he's a chauvinist. He's funny and he's cute, and I would never date him because he inherently thinks men are better than women. And I am a raging feminist, not the bra-burning kind, just I ragingly believe in equality. And so I'm having this crisis of conscience because... I often get in fights with my guy friends. I ruin parties, really, (laughs) um, because I so want them, you know, these strong, educated, white males to, I'm black, by the way, um, to identify as feminist because I think that's important for the cause, blah, blah, blah. And I think that if they knew that I was having sex with this guy who inherently believes that men are better than women. And not only that, I like totally get off on like him calling me a bitch and me being like, yeah, like fucking I'm like this dumb whore. I'm your dumb whore. He's like slapping me around. And I think the reason it's so, I know the reason it's so hot for me is that he, like, I know he believes it. And, you know, I think it would be really hot with a guy that respected me who was playing that playing that part as well. But, like, it's so much hotter because I, I know he thinks he's better than me. And that's just, like, that totally gets me off. Um, and maybe I'm comfortable getting off on it because I am pretty positive I'm better than him. And maybe that's an egotistical thing to say. But I am a woman. Hear me roar. Like, I'm a bad bitch. And, you know, he doesn't deserve me. But, like, fuck the sex is amazing and oh my god he goes down on me and it just like blows my mind so what do you think dan um i being a total hypocrite or is this just a kink thanks it would doubtless break the hearts of the boys that you lecture at parties about the feminist men they need to be if they knew that the way to get into your feminist pants was to be the opposite of the man you're scolding them for not yet being not being the feminist that you want them to be is the way to get into your pants. They would become a fresh new wave of guys whining about how nobody wants to fuck the nice guys on Twitter. And then they would in turn be scolded by feminists assuring them that if they're not getting laid, they're not actually nice guys. And then there you are getting your pussy chomped on by an asshole. I'm really conflicted about your call because I'm a fan of good sex and hot sex and the part wants what the part wants and your girl part wants his mouth part and other parts because he gets your blood flowing because it feels so what? Obviously, it feels so transgressive and that's part of what our erotic imaginations crave is not just a fulfillment of self or – someone who compliments us and our values, but somebody who negates them, somebody who crosses lines and boundaries, that that sense of risk and danger and stepping outside ourselves as we present ourselves to the world is very, very hot and very, very sexy. But there's a difference, I think, and a fundamental, crucial, important difference between fucking someone who's dressed up like a Nazi 
because those uniforms turn you on and that role play turns you on and fucking someone who is a fucking Nazi. And I'm not equating, you know, a sticky male chauvinist or a male shtickivist. Who knows if this guy really believes these things or if this is a game he's playing, some sort of pickup artist bullshit. I'm not equating that with Nazism. Assholery, yeah, I would equate that with assholery and bigotry and sexism, but not quite Nazism. But still, there are guys out there who could flip a switch, role play, turn it on, call you a bitch, throw you around, toss out that kind of dirty talk, who could still fundamentally respect you as an equal when you flip that switch back off by mutual consent, right? Well, not by mutual consent. By individual consent. If he wants to flip the switch off, he can. If you want to, you can. There are guys out there who can do this. Do what this guy is doing for you. But you went ahead and admitted that there's something about knowing he believes these things that makes it hotter. And I would encourage you to sit with that and think about that. I don't believe that means you aren't actually a feminist or you don't actually believe that you're equal, but how seriously do you take personally? You confront other people about a parties, you ruin parties when you confront them about their not being feminists or about their sexist comments or beliefs or assumptions, microaggressions or whatever it is that prompts you to ruin a party. You do all that and yet you look down between your legs and see the top of the head of an asshole, sexist, malchauvinist pig lapping away at your labia. Contradictions, transgressions are hot. But I think there's a line, and I think you may have crossed the line between, I don't want to say permissible, but perhaps ethical transgression and line crossing and hypocrisy. That this is kind of hypocritical. But you can still have your hypocrisy and your contradictions and this male chauvinist in your bed and in your pussy too if you want. It's a little bit like what I tell people who aren't out. I think not being out is a moral failing. I do not think that requires everyone to be out. If you can't be out, certainly because your circumstances don't allow it because you would be a victim of violence – you get a pass. But if you're just not out because mommy and daddy might have a sad or you're afraid – That's a moral failing. Doesn't mean I'm going to out you or you have to come out, but you have to take responsibility for that moral failing. You have to own it. You have to eat it. So maybe what you need to do here is own and eat this moral failing that this man in your bed, in between your legs, lapping away, in your pussy, represents a moral failing on your part, a letting down of the side, an aiding and abetting, a coggling of the enemy, in the fight that you consider yourself a foot soldier in. So you go ahead and enjoy the sex. I'm, there's nothing I can say I know that's going to peel this guy off you or you off this guy. It's too good. So enjoy the sex, recognize the contradictions, and own your own hypocrisy. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm 24, straight female living in England, and been dating the same guy for about a year and a half. Um, I met him pretty much like right when I moved over, and six months ago I decided to renew my visa and stay in the country and then a couple months ago our sex life started getting like horrible stopped going down on me it couldn't last very long and then like basically stopped getting boners we had to talk about it and 
I told them how I felt about our sex life and thought it was productive and, you know, we were going to move forward. Um, and then on Friday, we were out with coworkers. And I feel like I should add in England, or I don't want to make that generalization, but at my workplace, um, it's pretty common to get just like absolutely wasted with coworkers. Um, and so he got too drunk um, and he said he was going to the bathroom. So I went to talk to other people. And then like half an hour later, I couldn't find him. And I called him and I couldn't find him. So I thought he was asleep in the bathroom or something. And as it turns out, he was making out with some girl in the corner. I I don't think making out is a big deal. I just feel like I was in the room, you know, um, and our coworkers were watching. So like now it's just, I don't know. It's, it's just, I feel like a lot of people know about it. Um, do you think I should just get rid of this guy? I mean, we've been together for a while and I love him, but I, I don't know. And he's been apologizing profusely and all of a sudden the sex is back to how it used to be. But I'm just worried that maybe he's not the person I thought he was, or maybe he's been secretly hooking up with other people this whole time. I don't know. And if we break up, I guess I'm alone in England for another nine months until my visa expires. You know how sometimes you talk to a friend and they're thinking about breaking up with someone and then they mention that at least for now they can't end the relationship because they have a lease together because they have a lease on an apartment together. I think your visa, your visa extension, may for your boyfriend be that lease. That he'd like to break up with you, as evidenced by his waning interest in sex, except for the make-it-up-to-you sex in the wake of you discovering he got drunk and made out with some other girl at a bar. But he knows that you went and got this visa extension to stay with him. So he figures he needs to, to be a good guy. Wait it out. Wait out your visa extension and then break up with you. I would advise you to go ahead and break up with him. Your fear, the thing that seems to be staying your hand or nailing your feet to the floor in the apartment that you share is being alone in England at 24, which actually sounds pretty fucking awesome to be alone in England at 24. It means you can go out and meet other guys and make out with them in bars. You can date other people. You can have some adventures. You can enjoy your solitude. You can be alone. There's nothing wrong with being alone. A woman without a man in England is a woman with a lot to do. Not just other boys, other men, but theater, literature, travel, events, readings, lectures, the cinema. There is so much out there to entertain and divert you, including millions of other men with dicks of their own, most of them. So my advice to you, to end this relationship and enjoy the next nine months. I'm jealous that you get to be 24 and single in England. That is an enviable state. A few weeks ago, I took a call from a young lesbian who had just come out to her family and her family was not behaving well. They were abusing her and she had contemplated suicide and was in a really bad place. And she and I talked for a long time and a lot of listeners were really moved by her predicament. There's this outpouring of support for this young lesbian. People wanted to give her money. People offered her places to stay if she needed to get the fuck out of her parents' house. And she declined uh, that support. She asked people to donate money if they've felt so inclined to organizations like the Alley Forney Center or the True Colors Foundation. Um, and I said to her when I had her on the phone that I was going to call her back in a few weeks to check in on her and see how she's doing. And we have her right here now on the phone. 
So how are things? Um, going. I mean, I feel like I've been making some progress, I guess, towards independence. Are you still living at home? Yes. And how are your parents yeah. treating you these days? And how's therapy going? And just people are really concerned for you and people want to know how mm-hmm. you're doing. And you don't have to be – you're under no pressure to – you know, make people feel better by claiming to be in a better spot than you are. You know, I want you to be truthful, but how are you doing? Mm-hmm. People are still really concerned. I mean, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm still here. Um, my mom actually came with me to a therapy session recently, mm-hmm. um, which I think was really good. Um, I mean, we were able to talk about some things that I hadn't been able to, I guess, like work up the courage to really bring up with her before. With the support of your therapist. Yeah, yeah. She was great and, and kind of like facilitating conversations and, and pushing me to talk about things. And so I felt, I think, a little bit more comfortable around my mom since then. Um, kind of hearing her say out loud, you know, that she's not going <laughs> to just desert me or, or kick me out of the house or anything like that. Um, is she ready yet to accept you and love you? Um, I don't think that she's necessarily ready to put a stamp of approval on me being gay, but she's uh, maybe taking the first step towards that. And hopefully she'll soon understand that you're going to be gay with or without that stamp of approval. And withholding that stamp of approval isn't going to stop you from being gay. It's just going to damage your relationship with her. Yeah, that's kind of what I've been trying to to push a little bit. Yeah, I sometimes talk to parents who say they'll never accept their children's homosexuality. And I look at them and say, your children's homosexuality is not a package that was mailed to you by UPS. You don't have to accept it. It is. It exists. Mm -hmm. And it exists whether or not you accept it. And eventually mm-hmm. most parents come around, most parents who have a problem with their children when they first come out, with, with almost, they have this idea in their head that if they withhold their acceptance, they don't give their stamp of approval, that their child will stop being this thing, stop making this choice, which a lot of religious conservatives' parents believe it to be a choice. And mm-hmm. it takes time for them to, to, for it to sink in that it's futile. Withholding their approval, withholding their stamp of approval does nothing to change anything. It just does damage and harm to their kid and to their relationship with their kid. And if your mom's going to therapy with you, hopefully she's taking the first step down the road toward that realization. So there's hope for Yeah, I, I'm hopeful. I hope so. <laughs> and what steps are you, t- what concrete steps are you taking toward independence and living on your own? Because living with your dad or other family members who are disapproving and being vulnerable in your own living space to that kind of disapproval mm-hmm. is harmful. Yeah. So what steps are you taking? Um, well, I um I was accepted to a local community college for next fall, so I will be going to school. <laughs> yeah, um, so I will be starting school next year. Um, and then I've been having talks with a friend of mine about the possibility of living together within at least within the next year, if not sooner than that. Sooner. We're all, we, 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 everybody wants to, I'm sure would join me right now and say sooner, sooner than that. Don't wait a year sooner than that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm hopeful. It's just kind of coming down to financial stuff really. Well, I'm sure after you say that, we're going to get a million calls of people offering to help you out financially <laughs> again. So I know, I know. And I'm so touched by 
all of those offers. Like I, I mean, I still read some of the emails that were forwarded to me and it, I mean, it makes me feel so wonderful to read them. Um, I don't know. I just, I wasn't totally comfortable with the idea of accepting a lot of I understand financial that. support like that. I completely understand. Yeah. That. But if it comes down to, I'm going to shatter if I can't get out of here, know that there's a whole bunch of people who are listening to Savage Lovecast who are ready to act to help you. And one of the things that comes with loving and accepting yourself is learning to accept other people's help when offered, when you need it. Mm-hmm. So you have that in your back pocket. Okay. Okay. I will try to remember that. Tell us something that's not about your trials and tribulations and your family. Just one thing that's like something you did last week that you enjoyed, something that's in your life that gives you joy. I traveled to Chicago with my brother and his wife last week for just a day. Mm-hmm. We're giant nerds and went to the field museum and looked at fossils and stuff. That sounds that was wonderful. I love the field. I grew up in <laughs> Chicago. I was going to the field museum when I was a kid. It's awesome. Yeah, it was really fun. I'd never been to Chicago before, so it was a really fun experience. Did you make it out to the queer neighborhood? Did you go to Boys Town where there are a lot of dykes as well? <laughs> no. Uh, we were only there for a day. Next trip. Carve out some time to, yeah. to head to Boys Town. and meet And meet the women of Boys Town. And there are lots of them. <laughs> okay. I will do that. It was great talking to you. I am going to call you again in the future. I'm going to check in on you every once in a while, okay? Okay. Good luck. Thanks for jumping on the phone. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Dan. Two gay guys in their 20s calling for some advice. We are, we've been dating for about two years, and we ended up uh, on a drunken night hooking up with uh, another gay friend of ours. And it wasn't awkward. Things were cool um, and things were good. The only problem was that our friend who we hooked up with is a awful kisser. As a gay friend, he frequently confides in us that he has a hard time dating. He can take a guy out for a date or two, things go well, and then he doesn't hear back from them. And we can't help but think that his lazy tongue and poor kissing etiquette is the main cause for this. Uh, And we're just looking for some advice on how we tell our friend who we've hooked up with that the reason he's probably not getting a call back is because he's not good at kissing. People who have a hard time getting to that second or third date, people who hook up with someone once and never hear from that person again, are often at a loss for an explanation or for a reason. And they cast around. And these people who they only saw once or twice aren't obligated emotionally or socially to tell them what the problem was. So they wonder what the problem might be. And a lot of these people are encouraged by me and others in the sex and romantic advice racket to go to their friends and ask their friends what they might be doing wrong. And here you two are good friends with this guy, good enough friends that you hooked up with this guy and you may have discovered the reason, something that's contributing to his lack of success romantically. And I think you're obligated to share that with him. I think you need to go to him and say, look, you've had a hard time getting somebody to stick around. And do you want some constructive criticism or feedback? Because sometimes people in your case do. If you want it, there's something that we noticed that we wanted to 
bust out. And if you don't want it or can't hear it, we'll shut up and go away. But I'm sure after hearing that, hearing you say that, he's going to want to know what it was. And he's going to think it's worse than you're a shitty kisser. You roll it out like that and he's going to think – there's something wrong with my dick. There's I have halitosis. He's going to go to a lot of other places. I'm loud. I'm a lousy lay, and you're then going to come in with your kissing technique is really a problem, really off-putting. Ninety-nine point ninety-nine percent of humanity is not into a lazy, wet tongue flopping into their mouth. That's not a French kiss. A French kiss is not somebody drooling into your mouth off their unflexed disgusto tongue. So you need to have a little tutorial for him. And you've already hooked up once and you would be unlikely to hook up with him again if you're going to be kissed like that again. So what you say to him is, we are going to show you how this is done. We are going to make you a better kisser. And maybe it'll turn into a ego enhancing second hookup with you guys or maybe it'll just be a long tutorial. But I think... As friends, you need to risk hurting his feelings by giving him this info that he probably is desperate for and will, even if it hurts to hear it in the moment, will appreciate hearing, particularly from you guys. And Nancy Hartunian, the producer of the Savage Lovecast, suggests you get him drunk first, which raises issues of consent on college campuses all over the United States. And please direct your hate mail and ire to Nancy Hartunian, who believes that you should get people drunk and hook up with them. Hi, I am a chaplain and pastor. And I have found the man of my dreams, all our kinks line up, and he's well endowed. So, you know, bless the Lord. Um, I'm not a typical pastor, as you may figure out. And through a relationship, I've discovered that I don't want to get married. I don't want to be in a relationship that takes out my feminist views. I think marriage has been used for ill purposes throughout history, and I don't want to be a part of that institution. Um, We're finding ways to be comfortable with that. He's extremely comfortable with that. We don't want to have children. My line to people like family members is we are committed and happy (laughs) and leave it at that because people ask why we're not getting married because we've been together a long time now. I have a friend who is getting married, um, and I'm being the officiant, the pastor at her wedding. It's become a sore spot. She makes more money than I do and is throwing this huge thousands and thousands of dollar wedding, and I'm having feelings like, hey, no one has celebrated my life choices, Um, and I'm hoping to maybe throw a party one day for Josh and I, but I don't want to get married but I also want to be recognized in society for having a relationship of value. There's no term between boyfriend and fiance and husband that we're comfortable with. I've started saying partner and everybody assumes I'm referring to a female. So help with understanding how I fit in society this way. I also don't have a problem if other couples want to get married, obviously, because I officiate marriages all the time. Um, But I want to be recognized as well. I'm really confused by your call, by your quote-unquote predicament. You say that marriage is a sexist institution and you want no part in it personally, and yet you marry people. It seems to me that if something is so terrible and toxic that you wouldn't want to 
have any part of it, then you shouldn't have any part of it. I wouldn't eat that restaurant. The food's terrible. It gives people botulism. Everybody who goes to that restaurant gets sick, but I'll make a reservation for you if you really want. Seems a little hypocritical. Seems a little crazy. And I'm with you. Marriage, sexist institution, historically, yes. Now, however, sexism in marriage is opt-in. And if non-sexist people don't marry and have non-sexist marriages, you're ceding marriage to the sexists. Marriage is only as sexist an institution as the two people in it in the West choose to make it. Marriage is now, because straight people redefine marriage before gay people even thought to ask to legally marry, marriage is what the two people in it say that it is. Marriage in the United States is the legal union of two autonomous and equal individuals for as long as they want to be married. Get married in church or not, have children or not, married for life or not, the wife can submit to the husband or the husband can submit to the wife in a glorious femdom marriage or they can be equal partners up to that couple. So you saying because marriage used to be this or this used to be marriage's default setting, we can have no part in it is to ignore the transformation of marriage, the redefinition of the institution that has stripped out of its motherboard the shit that you say that you object to. And that strikes me as game-playing idiocy, frankly. Now, on to the party that you're not having because you're not throwing it. Your friend is getting married, and this is a sore spot because nobody's gathering together to celebrate your wedding. Do you expect some sort of spontaneous party to break out in your honor at some point? You need to have that party. And you can have that party. Pick a date. Pick the first time you guys fucked or met or hooked up or the day that you guys moved in together, some significant date, and throw yourselves a fucking anniversary party and invite all of your friends to come and celebrate your life choice, your choice of a partner. I bet they'll all come. But you have to create that occasion. That's what your friend who's getting married is doing. She's creating an occasion where friends and family can gather to celebrate her choice of a partner and they're building it around the institution and the occasion of a marriage ceremony and celebration. You can create that same opportunity for a celebration without having to build it around a marriage ceremony or celebration, but you have to do that. You have to make that happen. Your friends are not spontaneously going to throw you a, they're not getting married hip hip hooray for their life partnership celebration. You have to do that. That is on you. And finally, what to call each other. Call each other partners. That's what committed people in relationships that are not previously capable of being recognized as marital relationships did. That's what we did, we queers. And we now give that term over to you and over to anybody queer or straight who wants their relationship recognized uh, but does not want to assume the terrible crushing weight of the historical meanings of husband and wife Take partner. And if your only objection to partner is when you throw that word out there, people assume at first that your partner is female. I would challenge you to examine those lingering scraps of homophobia. What is wrong with you being assumed in the moment to be a lesbian and having to correct someone? It happens to me pretty frequently when people in hotels who don't know the fuck I am or in airports on airplanes spot my wedding ring. They don't ask about my husband. Ask about my wife. And I have no problem saying my wife is a man with a big dick and laugh it off. 
if you say partner and they assume that you're a lesbo, laugh it off. There's nothing wrong with being a lesbo or assumed to be a lesbo or a bibo in the moment like that. Take it from we're going to take a quick break from your phone calls for a conversation with someone who wants to take issue with one of my rants at the top of the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I talked about uh, new reports from the CDC about skyrocketing STI rates, particularly among gay and bi men. And I suggested or I stated that I believe that this might have something to do with PrEP or Truveda or Truvada, however the fuck you pronounce that. I get yelled at from people on both sides. Uh, and that this might be contributing to rising rates of sexually transmitted infections among gay and bi men because there is now a pill that you can take that is insanely effective. We talked about it a lot on the show at preventing or protecting you from getting HIV, from being exposed successfully to HIV. And sexually active gay and bi men should be on this pill. But is the pill contributing to gay men walking away from condoms, gay and bi men not using condoms as often and gay and bi men assuming that because they're protected from HIV that there's nothing that they have to worry about and perhaps this might have something to do with rising STI rates. Joining me on the phone now to argue with me, Peter Staley, long-term AIDS activist profiled in the Oscar-nominated documentary How to Survive a Plague. And if you are a gay or bi man alive in the United States of America today, you have Peter Staley, among others, to thank for a lot, for your health, for the response that eventually came to the HIV AIDS epidemic. It is an honor to have you on the show, Peter. You've saved so many lives, probably mine included. Now go ahead and yell at me. <laughs> well, first off, thanks for finally having me on your show, Dan. <laughs> um, uh, I'm a huge admirer. Um, so, and by the way, a, a movement uh, saved your life has saved my life. Uh, and you were a huge and influential part of that movement. One of the leaders. Thank you. I'm 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 proud and and uh, uh, and still pinch myself that I was uh, able to witness it and be a part of it. Um, but it was an amazing moment for the gay community, an amazing moment of, of people power at its best. So, but thank you. Um, so yeah, you got it wrong last week or two weeks ago. Specifically, the only beef I really had is that you said the CDC was saying what you were saying. And the CDC hasn't said what you were saying. The CDC's report, which was, you know, uh, I think 177 pages, outlining the rise of STDs in, in gay men specifically, gay and bi men, that have been rising for years, long before PrEP, did not mention the word PrEP uh, in their report or their press release, all 177 pages. They did tie it to something you you spoke at, uh, in the first minutes of your podcast, which was the massive reduction in STD services around the country. Mm -hmm. That was one speculation. But they haven't made the leap yet to, to pin it on PrEP use. And in fact, nobody really can. Uh, and the reason is statistics. There simply aren't enough people on PrEP now to be uh, impacting national STI numbers, or even national HIV numbers. Um, so, I'm, I, you know, I'm flipping it uh, against some overeager AIDS activists and overeager PrEP activists who are saying, oh, the falling STD, the falling HIV rates in certain parts of the country are because of PrEP. No, it's too early to say that. There are only about twenty to 30,000 Americans taking PrEP at this point, mm -hmm. which is 
way too low a number. We're, we're actively trying to uh, educate around PrEP and get doctors more comfortable in prescribing it. And uh, localities around the country are, are launching programs that are advertising PrEP. We're just at the beginning of trying to roll out PrEP as a community-wide intervention. But the numbers are just sim- simply way too low to be impacting national STI uh, statistics. You're not arguing that it, it isn't PrEP, just that there's not the evidence yet that it's PrEP, that is contributing to really this, this spike in new STI infections among gay and bi men, that you look at the graph, you look at the line on the graph, and you hit 2013, it just is this very – it had been rising all along, but this very steep new rise – yeah, Let me throw one thing out there. Remember the harm reduction model that we were all talking about in the 90s? And one of the right. things that we talked about was core group behaviors, that the HIV infection epidemic then was really being driven by a small number of gay and bi men. They called them the core group. A lot of these guys were getting sexually transmitted infections. They were getting syphilis again and again. And these guys were not very likely to use condoms. Are these guys, do you think, overrepresented in the twenty to 30,000 who are on PrEP and – could be driving this this spike? Or is this all speculation? We just can't know? Is that your argument? But doesn't it seem likely? We don't know yet, but we do have to pull back further. The the STI, STD, national STD graphs have been going up uh, since the late 90s, uh, uh, especially syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia with, with gay men. Um, the national numbers that the CDC just released showed uh, an upward curve in that trend in the last two years. So the trend had been going up, and it's curving up faster now mm-hmm. on a national level. But if you look at uh, the one area where the, in the country where there has been some significant prep uh, intervention, which is San Francisco, their, their trend line uh, is up, but it, it has not – and they have – data from the last month, by the way. They, they do a monthly STD report. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not see any specific spike uh, uh, that deviated from that trend line in 2013 or 14. We're right on it. And this is where, this is the laboratory that everybody is looking at. San Francisco. And, and, and what, it, San Francisco, because they're doing the best data collection and they have the most prep use. We just had a study released yesterday by Magnet, which gives out most of the prep in San Francisco from the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Uh, They personally have 600 clients that they're following right now on prep. 91% of of this group reported that they were not using condoms at baseline when they asked for prep. So yes, you are right. It is a risky group of men who are seeking out and asking for PrEP. And that's exactly who we want to get on PrEP. Absolutely. And I yes, completely agree with you. That is absolutely who yeah. we want to get on PrEP. Yeah. But are there going to be more guys getting on PrEP and walking away from condoms? Which, you know, well, condoms are not, a really I, terrific way not just to protect yourself from HIV, but from syphilis, from gonorrhea, chlamydia. Not perfect, but highly effective. Right. And if but we and if gay men have it in their heads that I have this pill now and I take it and I think and I have I have said guys who are sexually active gay men should be on prep. I'm not saying because you know, I'm not taking the AIDS Foundation for America line that because some people might take prep and stop using condoms nobody should be allowed to have prep or nobody should be on prep. But how do we address this phenomenon that there are guys out there 
who may have been using condoms going on PrEP and stopping. But we, we know from the studies that that is um, a very small... The, the, the guy who is going from 100% condom use mm-hmm. to PrEP and no or reduction in condom use is a very, very small percentage of the PrEP market. And if you're going to start dinging PrEP or uh, skewing our public health policies based on that small segment of PrEP users, you're going to miss the ball of wax here. Mm-hmm. Um, by far, the largest group that is using this are guys who are already at risk. They know that they're they know that they're at risk, and they want to reduce that risk. They're being very rational. Now, let's look again at San Francisco. You have a, you have a, a rise in gonorrhea, rectal gonorrhea, that's begun to spike up uh, at slightly higher rates in uh, 2013 and 14. Um, but at the same time, uh, gonococcal uh, proctitis, which is uh, another measure of rectal gonorrhea, but is a direct measure of proctitis, which is an inflammation uh, uh, in the anus, has remained flat. So San Francisco is speculating that the increased testing that is happening because of PrEP might be a factor in some of the upcurve in oh, the I gonorrhea rate. Because a lot of people are getting PrEP through programs that are funding it also require them to come in for regular STI testing. We don't know, we don't know yet whether people who wear condoms less but test for STDs more are actually going to lower STD rates over time or raise them over time. Hmm. We simply don't know it yet. Bottom line, it is way too soon to speculate that we're going to see an explosion of STDs because of PrEP. We've been on an upward curve. Guys are not wearing condoms. And we have to see with the testing. We have to do a hell of a lot better at testing and treating. And that's one thing that PrEP gets right. Um, It forces guys to test and treat. Can you hang out and take a call with me and answer a question from a listener? All right, here we go. Uh, So I'm 23 years old in New York City, and um, I'm gay. And I just went to my first sex party and it was a really great experience. I had a great time. Um, it was fun. But I had one risky encounter, and I just want some advice. So the first guy I was with, I was about to, like, top him. And I pulled out a condom, and he said, oh, I'm on prep, so do whatever you want. And I was still, like, kind of nervous and getting into the whole scenes. But so I kept getting soft. And then he turned around He turned around and started giving me head. And at that time, I guess he took the condom off. And I didn't realize. And then I fucked him and came in him. Uh, and, yeah, that was it. But And now I'm just kind of nervous. Um, I saw him get topped by, like, three or four other guys before me. I, I'm considering going on PEP just to be safe. My concerns are that so is three or four drugs you take for four weeks, which is kind of scary. And that I'm still on my parents' uh, health insurance. I don't want them to find out I took it, but you got to do what you got to do. And my last concern is that I saw that it costs upwards of $45 on health insurance for each drug. And I really don't have that amount of money right now. I don't know. I just wanted some advice on what you think I should do. I get tested every about every six months. I'm negative on everything. Never had anything. I'm not on prep because... 
I really haven't had that many partners before this or really many risky encounters. And now I'm just left not, not sure what I should do. Anecdotes ain't data. I know that. But these are the anecdotes that I'm getting. I didn't cherry pick this call. I didn't go find, dig into the pile of calls we get to find the scariest call about prep. This is representative of the calls I'm getting. And maybe this is why I'm easily panicked about it. And my sample is hopelessly skewed. People don't call me when everything's going really well. People call me when things are off the rails. So my, all my samples are skewed after years of doing this. But this is what I'm hearing. I'm on prep, so do whatever you want. He's not on prep. No, the, he, that's what he's quoting the guy that he topped at the party. The guy said, oh, right. you don't have to use a condom. This guy's already been fucked by three or four guys before him that night. Right. Who he presumably said the same thing to. And that's but, the guy you want on prep. Presumably. Well, no, absolutely that's the guy you want on prep. But right. this is what I'm hearing, which makes me go, that guy who's on prep, who's saying to this person at a sex party where he's been fucked by four other guys already, I'm on prep, do whatever you want. I hear those stories and I think, yeah, that guy's getting or has gotten and may have already spread syphilis. Very because likely. If it, because if his attitude is, I'm on prep, do whatever you want. That guy existed in 2011, mm-hmm. Dan. But, but look at, but, the, so, but, but so, what I, wait, wait, where we were just talking about was, will more guys stop using condoms? And here you have the guy who pulled out the condom, who says that he went ahead and fucked the guy without the condom, without realizing it, which I'm not sure I buy. Yeah. The guy turned around and blew him and suddenly there's no condom and he doesn't right, – and right. he manages to fuck the guy and come in and without realizing there's no condom. I don't buy that. He just didn't want right. Daddy Dan to scold him for going ahead with it, right? right? But here's a guy who started at that sex party with a condom in his hand and ended that sex party with his cum in someone else's ass, no condom. Right. And, because, jump, and, you, and you want to blame Pratt? No, I don't want to blame. I don't want to blame prep. I, I think prep is good, and I recommend it all the time. But it is going to have an impact on the choices people make, just like the drug cocktail had an impact on the choices people were making 18 years ago when the drug cocktails came online, and HIV went from pretty much an assured death sentence at that time to mm-hmm. a chronic manageable condition. I stopped using condoms 18 years ago in part right. because of that with my partner. When, but previously. I was really hyper even in a committed monogamous relationship about condoms and that changed my approach to condoms. And I think it's not demonizing prep. It's not saying guys who are sexually active shouldn't use it. But we can't be Pollyanna about the fact that people are going to make different kinds of choices in the moment sexually because of prep. And we have to have a conversation about that. Exactly. But the, 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 que- the question then becomes – so we're, le- we're left now with a re- reduced risk of HIV, and you and I are talking about an increased risk, an increasing risk over time of other STDs. Mm-hmm. What do we do about that? If you're, I heard you on your podcast saying, "Don't ditch the condoms, guys," and that's a great, you know, that's a great message. But a lot of guys are ditching the condoms. What do we do for them? We have got to have better interventions on testing and treating for STDs. We have been pulling back on resources on that right and left around this country. And it it is definitely dropping condom use that has been raising STDs since the early nineties. Absolutely. Early nineties. Yeah. I dropped condoms in the early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. And this happened at the peak of the death and dying of HIV AIDS. Condom use started to drop around 1992. Mm-hmm. Before heart and heart and heart accelerate uh, highly active retroviral therapy, the the, the cocktails accelerated the be, the abandonment of condoms. 
Um, and they've been reduced ever since to the point where young gay men simply aren't using them. And those young gay men should be on prep. And I tell them that all the time. Your podcast and Larry Kramer and uh, Michael Weinstein are not going to uh, convince these guys to start wearing condoms by uh, simply imploring them. We have to give them other tools to protect themselves. And one of those effective tools is prep for HIV, uh, condoms if they're still freaking out about uh, STDs, keep encouraging condoms, but test and treat often if they're not using condoms. And we have to really push the test and treat message. Test and treat often even if you are using condoms because there are sexually transmitted infections, including syphilis that you can get from skin-to-skin contact, and people need to be cognizant of that. This has been a fascinating conversation, but quickly before I let you go, let's answer this caller's questions. He seems confused about what PrEP is. He says it's four drugs, $45 each, not true. Um, He's talking about PEP. PrEP. No, he's talking talking about PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. His doctor is saying if you're – and he had to start it within 72 hours of the – Of exposure. So this is so confusing for people who don't follow this as closely. There's PrEP, which is Truvada, which you go on. It's daily. Truvada. You go on it daily. It protects you from HIV infection. It's insanely effective, and everybody who's gay or bi, it's sexually active, and has multiple partners should be on PrEP. Um, and then there's PEP where, you know, if you're a doctor in a hospital and you get a needle prick or if you are using condoms and you're not on Truvada and a condom breaks, you can see your doctor right away and get on PEP, just post-exposure prophylaxis, which can prevent an infection if indeed there is HIV from taking, from being successfully infected. Um, the best way to differentiate them, PrEP is like a birth control pill, but you're blocking HIV instead of a baby. And PEP is the morning after like plan B. Plan B. Yeah, Plan B, the morning after pill. Except it's like 28 days of taking a full regimen of HIV meds. So it ain't easy. He should have probably done that if he was really concerned. He should have started it. And and normally you can get it free from hospital emergency rooms. So the the cost stuff shouldn't be a major factor. But Peter Staley, co-founder of the Treatment Action Group, Big wig and act up. Would you please tell this kid that if he's going to go to sex parties and stick his dick in randos who've had four dicks in them already, that he should be on Truvada as well? Yes. For his you should own consider it. Piece of, not consider it. it. Here we are in the sex advice racket. We're in the prescriptive business. Like, fucking right. do it. Don't right. consider it. Got caller. Fucking do it. Get on right. Truvada. If you're going to be the kind of young and fun, full of cum, gay boy in New York City who's going to go to sex parties... And stick your dick in randos who've had four dicks in them already, you should be on Truvada. Exactly. It, unless you're somebody that wears condoms 100% of the time, you should really think about it. Because if you're only at 90% of the time, you're at high risk for HIV. Peter Staley, long-term AIDS activist, profiled in the Oscar-nominated and should have won They Was Robbed documentary, How to Survive a Plague. If you are a young gay or bi guy who can hear the sound of my voice, please get on Netflix, get online, watch How to Survive a Plague, and take a look at, uh, with gratitude, the men who saved your life, including Peter Staley. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Peter, and taking me to task. Thanks, Dan. Hey, Dan. How you doing? I'm a 33-year-old male from the East Coast. I had a question for you. Uh, I am uh, straight, and my friends are straight. There, are, uh, there were three of us in this given night that I'm going to cite as an example. And I really wanted to go to a local gay bar that hosts great karaoke nights. So we went there. 
uh, with my straight friends. And, uh, and again, I am straight as well. And one of my straight friends took a big issue with us going there, uh, not because he's homophobic, but because he said it was uh, inappropriate to go to a gay bar when none of us were gay and we didn't know anybody there. Uh, wanted to get your take on this. My opinion was it was not inappropriate and it wasn't insulting because we had a fun time and we, you know, made a lot of good friends. So is it weird for four straight guys to go to a gay bar and is it allowed? It is allowed. Karaoke night. I think it is allowed for karaoke night. If it's a sleazy, dark, dank pickup joint where people want to make out on the dance floor, where people want to feel perhaps the license to randomly grope or be grope, that kind of sleazy, packed in, dark and dirty space, straight people pouring into that space, kind of a problem, right? There are some spaces that are queer where everybody needs to be queer for the space to function as intended. But a karaoke night, a, uh, something like that is an activity, you know, a gay bingo night in a gay bar. I think straight people can and perhaps should roll in for those sorts of events. Don't have a problem with it. You can tell your straight friend that my not having a problem with it trumps his having a problem with it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old male in a major West Coast city, Central Coast, California. Um, I'm dating a 25-year-old girl. Things are great. I really enjoy her company. Uh, when we were getting together, we started reading uh, George Bataille's erotic masterpiece, Story of the Eye. Uh, there's a part in the book where um, the young man who's the narrator is uh, breaking into an insane asylum to rescue their tripod. Um, they don't succeed in it, and there's a violent storm outside of uh, the asylum. And um, the young man has a gun, and he gives it to the girl. And while they're fucking, she shoots off wild shots into the night. Um, the girl I'm dating is extremely turned on by it, and she wants to have sex while she's shooting off a gun. Um, I'm a social worker, and in wake of the San Bernardino shootings, um, it makes me a little nervous. I want to indulge her fantasy, and I find it really hot um, to indulge that fantasy in her. Um, I've had a lot of experience with polyamory, and I'm definitely GGG, but it seems incredibly dangerous. And um, I'm wondering what you think of this, because I want to approach this in the spirit of being GGG, um, but also I want to take safety into account. Um, what do you think? I think you're ggg ear than I am, because I don't think I could indulge uh, someone, even someone that I loved, in gunplay. There are gunplay fetishists out there. Maybe you could get online and find a few and get their advice about what you, how you safely incorporate live ammunition, if it must be live ammunition, into sex play. I think people, when they're fucking, are kind of distracted and you don't want guns in the hands of distracted people. But that's just me. I don't think, personally, I don't think we should have guns in the hands of any people, frankly. Repeal the Second Amendment. Please join me in this fight. That said, there are toy guns. There are starter pistols. There are caps and there are blanks. There is a way perhaps to safely indulge her. That said, if you do decide to play with blanks, I would urge you first to Google John Eric Hexum. He was a really hot actor in the 80s, really fucking sexy male actor on TV in a couple of movies. And he was filming when he decided it would be funny to point the gun at his own head that he knew had blanks in it. And he pulled the trigger and the plug in the blank, 
went into his brain and killed him. So blanks don't mean you can point guns at people necessarily or yourself. So if you do decide to go with blanks, please read about the sad tale of hottie dummy John Eric Hexum who pointed a gun at his own head because it had a blank in it and killed himself. Yeah, I'm watching the uh, special on asexual and um, my husband is. Um, I've had huge, huge problems with this. We haven't had sex for years. Um, I thought he was gay. I went through all this. So my question is, what about the spouses that have been drawn in and married to people that are unwilling to admit that they're asexual? Um, I know that it is, I, I have to come to contentions with that. Would I cheat on him? I would, um, for sex sake. Um, so I, I'm watching your special, and it's all about these poor people that have no sex desire. But what about the people that they manipulate into their lives to cover up their stories? I'm one of them. We don't know, or I can't know based on your call, whether your husband is actually asexual or your husband just doesn't want to fuck you and you are trapped in a sexless marriage with someone who doesn't want to fuck you. Those are two different things. That said, I have heard from and particularly about 10 years ago, 15 years ago when the asexuality thing kind of first burst into the public consciousness, people who were asexual, who entered into relationships with people who were sexual, misrepresented themselves some consciously. They were aware that they were asexual and they felt that they were entitled to intimacy and a romantic connection and they wanted marriage and kids or just marriage. They wanted a partner but they didn't want sex and they – Fucked someone just enough to get that person to make a commitment to them and then stop fucking them because they were asexual. And I had a problem with that. That would be like a gay man convincing a straight woman that he was straight so that she would marry him and then he stopped fucking her because he wasn't actually sexually interested in her at all. And that is abusive and it's dishonest. And if your husband did that to you consciously, that's a terrible thing. But there are people who enter into long-term committed relationships who perhaps are asexual and don't yet realize it because there isn't enough information out there about asexuality. There isn't enough awareness of asexuality. And the problem with that is then people who are asexual don't have the tools that they need to so identify, to self-identify, to understand themselves and then present themselves to others honestly. If your husband didn't know what asexuality was, he couldn't possibly identify as asexual himself. He may have assumed that he had no interest in sex and that was normal and you would one day have no interest in sex either. Or he may have assumed that in a long-term relationship, an interest in sex, although he had none at the start, perhaps had none ever, was something that grew because that is a lie that gets bandied about. That the more in love with someone that you are, the longer you spend with them, the more sexually attracted to them you will become. And perhaps he believed that. So letting your husband off the hook perhaps. So what do you do? You're trapped in a sexless marriage, whether it's because he's asexual or because he's not into you, one or the other. The fact is you're trapped in a sexless marriage. What do you do? What do you do with your anger and resentment? Well, you can divorce. You're not trapped in this marriage forever. You can leave it. You can also tell your husband that you will be there. You know, If you do love him, if you're good partners or parents together, you can say to him, clearly our marriage is not about sex. And so this thing that you have no desire to do, I don't consider it cheating. 
and you shouldn't either if I do it with someone else. This thing you don't want to do, I'm going to do with somebody else, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stay married to you. You can declare your sexual independence while staying in the marriage if you so choose. If you're trapped in this marriage economically, socially, in some way, you are trapped in this marriage and your husband is one of those crazy people who doesn't want to fuck the spouse but doesn't want the spouse to fuck anybody else, then I think you have a right to go ahead and cheat or as I like to say, do what you need to do to stay married if you must and stay sane. Nancy, Dan, you missed something important on the poor girl who got a pinky fracture from her boyfriend's nibbling. Uh, as a family physician, I can tell you she may very well have osteoporosis, thinning of the bones. Uh, this can occur with at any age, really, for a variety of reasons, late maturity, poor nutrition, vitamin D deficiency, steroid medication. Uh, she probably actually told the ER doctor she slammed it in a door, but uh, some playful nibbling that causes a fracture would prompt me to do a workup for thin bones. So she, she needs a bone density test, as do probably all the other poor folks out there that were advised to see how hard they can bite their finger. A few of those now have unexpected fractures. Thanks, guys. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in reference to episode 476, where the guy was unsure about how to handle the dog fucking triad. I agree with you that this is probably just a vicious rumor. I exist in a fairly large kink community, and I've never come across this. So to have three in a small community is unlikely. That being said, I just wanted to make it clear that having sex with animals is not a kink. Consent is a foundation of kink, and animals, not unlike children or intoxicated persons or what have you, cannot consent. So having sex with animals or other beings that cannot consent is rape or abuse. So to keep these out, people out of your party is the least you could do. Um, I would even suggest if that there is any foundation to this, that the police be called. Hi, Dan of the Tech Savvy at Risk Use. I'm calling about podcast number 476, the one-minute one, specifically in reference to uh, the lady whose boyfriend had a really hard mattress. I, you know, totally spot on in, in terms of being deferential and speaking up and, and saying the things that you, speaking your truth, so to speak. But I went into a situation sort of similar to this, and there was a class issue around because mattresses aren't cheap, and they can be grody and crappy if you get them used, and sometimes you have to cling to things. Uh, cause you can't afford to change them out. And that might be a factor in not wanting to bring it up. And I wanted to suggest a memory foam mattress pad cause they're really they're way cheaper than another mattress. And you could just roll it out when a person's there and then roll it up when they're not. Everybody wins. Plus you can see your shapes when you lay and get up in the bed. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, 206-302-2064. Mugs. We have mugs, Savage Swag. The first Savage Swag really ever in a very long time. Go to thestranger.com slash Savage Swag or GGG Mugs or subtle and understated Fuck First Mugs. You will love them, you will dig them, you will drink your coffee from them every morning. And while we're throwing out websites at savagelovecast.com, you can find the subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast twice as long and no ads at savagelovecast.com where you can subscribe to the Magnum Edition. You can also gift the Magnum Edition to people in your life who need the Savage Lovecast. 
Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Peter Staley on Twitter at Peter Staley. Speaking of Twitter, Megmas tweets, Oh my God, Nancy is the best. Have her help answer questions more often. Luckless tweets, Please have Nancy on the show more often. She is amazing. And WP Schlitz tweets, Fake Dan Savage is awesome, but Nancy needs to come in and regulate more often. She rocks. I completely agree that Nancy should jump in front of the mic more often on the Savage Lovecast. And just between you guys and me, for every time Nancy actually is on the show, there are about 10 or 15 times I am begging and importuning her to come on the show. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by who? By Nancy Hartunian, who rocks and is awesome. And me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.